This morning, we continue in our series entitled Origins through the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. As I read Genesis chapter 5, I'd invite you to follow along and to listen attentively. So we're going to begin this morning by reading Genesis 5. And here is my prayer before we do. Father in heaven, we ask and trust that you will bless the reading of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Canaan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel lived... 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Ancestry.com, 
23andMe.com, MyHeritageDNA.com, FamilyDNA, FamilyTreeDNA.com. Look, there's an industry being built around helping people to unearth their biological origins. We want to know how we came to be. We want to know who our family is, and we want to know the stories we're a part of. And with the United States being such a young country, this can often be difficult for us to do, but for the ancient Israelites, to whom the book of Genesis was first given through the prophet Moses, it wasn't the case. Because of their oral traditions and genealogies, like the one we've just read, the ancient Israelites knew who they were. They knew their family of origin, and because of it, they held a tangible story that helped to shape their lives. And that's one reason why genealogies like Genesis 5 are important, hear me, because an intimate knowledge of the past provides shape and understanding for the present. In the flow of the biblical story, Genealogies also serve as transitions. That is, they close out one section of the story and they introduce a new one. And that's exactly what's happening here in Genesis chapter 5. It bridges the gap between creation, fall, and the flood. In chapters 1 through 4, remember our wonderful God created everything and it was very good. But Adam and Eve, after being tempted by the serpent of Satan, they disobeyed God's single command and their sin corrupted the order and innocence of the world that God had made good. In Genesis 3.15, God issued to Adam and Eve a promise and a warning, right? He promised that he would provide an offspring to come and crush the serpent's head and to thwart his power but in the meantime, God warned there would be hostility, there'd be enmity, there'd be bad blood between the offspring of Eve and the offspring of the serpent. Now, we need to follow some logic here. Every human to be born on the earth would be born biologically through Adam and Eve. The serpent would not bear children of his own. However, the vast majority of Adam's and Eve's descendants would be entranced and entangled by the serpent's influence. They would listen to the serpent's whisper. They would bear down against those whom God was righteously raising up. We saw this last week between Cain and Abel. Biblical theologian Thomas Schreiner, whom I greatly respect, observes that Cain's corrupt life is the realization of God's warning. The serpent would have offspring and there would be enmity, there'd be strife. This understanding is furthered in chapter four, verses 17 through 24. We didn't read that this morning, but in that passage we see Cain's descendants wandering deeper into the serpent's corruption. Cain's great-grandson, Lamech, he takes two wives, not just one, and then he kills a man for opposing him. And he arrogantly justifies himself saying, well, if Cain's blood should be avenged sevenfold, mine should be avenged 77-fold. Offspring of the serpent abound, as does enmity and bloodshed. And yet, in chapter four, verses 25 and 26, we see, hallelujah, 
God is not willing to abandon his promise to rescue. Glory. He will provide the ultimate offspring to defeat the serpent in due time, and he'll do so by forging a genealogical pathway as we see in chapter four, verse 25, when God appoints, look at the wording, he appoints another offspring to Eve, Seth. So Abel is dead. Cain and most of his offspring are off following the serpent, but not Seth. And in chapter five, we're told of Seth's descendants all the way down to a man named Noah whom God will use in the upcoming chapters, listen, to wash humanity through the baptism of a flood. This is how Genesis 5 serves as a transition from the fall to the flood, but, but Genesis 5 is not merely a transitional passage. For the remainder of our time, we'll make three important observations right here in Genesis chapter five. We see three things if you're a note taker. Number one, the perpetuation of life. Number two, the punishment of death. And number three, the providence of God is on display right here in this passage. Number one, the perpetuation of life. Uh, there's a movie called A Quiet Place. Maybe you've seen it, maybe you've not. It's kind of spooky. It's not everyone's cup of tea, I get that. But in the movie A Quiet Place, I won't give any spoilers away, <laughs> an evil force has invaded the earth and everything is going downhill. However, the main characters, a husband and a wife, are expecting a child. The movie's actually very pro-life and pro-family because they don't attempt to abort or get rid of the baby. Having a child in the circumstances that are going on in the movie is, is not ideal. And yet, in the movie, they joyfully welcome this child with open arms because every human life, no matter the circumstance, is a gift. And as we see here in Genesis 5 explicitly laid out, every human life reflects the image of God who gives us life. In verses one and two, we're reminded that Adam and Eve have been created in God's image. And then in verses three and four, we see that God's image upon Adam is passed down to Adam's son, Seth. And then in six and seven, we see well, that God's image upon Seth is passed down to his son, Enosh. And then from Enosh to Kenan, and from Kenan to the most fun name to pronounce so far, Mahalalel, and then to Jared, and then to Enoch, who is mentioned several times later in scripture, and then to Methuselah, who lives the longest of anyone in scripture, and then to Lamech, that name is familiar, but it's a different Lamech than Cain's great-grandson, and then finally from Lamech to Noah, who will serve as a prominent figure in the next several chapters of the story. Now, these are just the names that are recorded. Genesis 5 tells us there are, there are many other image-bearing sons and daughters born throughout these generations. And scholars aren't in total agreement as to whether this genealogy provides a precise 
birth order, an exact birth order, or a general birth order with some generation gaps in between. But that's not what you're here to, we're not here to argue about. We're not here to argue about anything. We're here to be astounded by, by God's merciful perpetuation of life. And here's why we should be astounded by this. Adam and Eve's rebellion has not only fractured creation, it has exiled them from the garden in which they used to walk with God. Their firstborn son has killed their secondborn son, and now the majority of their descendants are off being hypnotized by the serpent. What Adam and Eve deserve for instigating such a pandemic of sin is immediate physical and spiritual death. It's what they deserve. It's what we all would deserve. It's what we all do deserve. And physical death is in the picture here. We'll talk about that in a moment. But see here, God still mercifully in the business of granting new life through man's procreation. And in the process of granting new life, as we also see here, God is personally forging a path for his promised rescue. From Seth, from Adam to Seth to Noah. As theologian Kent Matthews comments, Genesis 5 is a tribute to God's continued blessing. In spite of Adam's sin and Cain's murder, a righteous seed is being ensured with the hope of a better future. Now, how does this perpetuation of life apply to us today, even now in this room? Well, firstly, we should understand that life is a gift. I know we, off the cuff, think that and, and, and we say that, but, but life is a gift. I'm not trying to be callous or overly simplistic but we've got to see here, for those of us who are in Christ by repentant faith, even our toughest days here on earth, even on those days, on our toughest days here on earth, look, we are doing better than we deserve. Because we exist, we're here. You can, you can touch me, I can touch you, we're, we're breathing, we have being. Secondly, we must see that our days matter. Underneath all of our activities and our routines and our distractions, we need to ask ourselves a really important question. What song is being sung by the collection of my days? The way you and I spend each day, when they add up, it's the way we end up spending our whole lives. So what song is being sung by your activities and routines and your distractions? Are your thoughts and actions and priorities singing the song of the serpent or of the Savior? 
Each of our lives is singing a song. And here's the sobering reality. Our God not only, not only hears the song of our lives, he records it. Imagine with me that wonderful and dreadful day that is upcoming when each of us will go before the maker of heaven and earth. Imagine that he sits you down and looks you in the eye and then presses play on the recording of your life. What song will you hear as you stare into the eyes of Christ Redeemer? The sobering reality is that day is coming. Physical death is coming for each of us, just like it did these generations in Genesis 5, and just like God said would happen when Adam and Eve ate from the forbidden tree. That's the second thing we observe in Genesis 5. So back to point number two of our big note-taking outline, the punishment of death. Apart from the mysterious exception of Enoch, Enoch walked with God in righteousness until God took him prior to his death. Other than that exception, notice the final phrase of every paragraph in this genealogy, and I'm gonna read them out loud. The monotony is on purpose here. And he died, 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 I lost count, there should be nine. And he died, <laughs> and he died, and he died, and he died. I had a counter in the back. Seems a bit grim to laugh at this point here because I'm really trying to bring something up. But here's, here, the repetition of that phrase is intentional. And he died. It serves as a rhythmic reminder of sin's consequence. Although God is mercifully perpetuating human life, look, sin has entered our world and every one of us has danced with it. Because of this, just as God has spelled out time and time and time again in his word, the wages of sin is what? Death. Now, I hope not to overly belabor this point, but this needs to be held right in front of our faces for a moment because Genesis 5 is holding it right in front of our faces. In the same way that all these descendants die in this passage, so are you going to die and so am I. It could be a matter of minutes. It could be a matter of days or months or years. Or decades, we don't know what God knows, but what we do know is that, number one, life has gotten a lot shorter for us than it was for the generations of this genealogy. We also know that unless Christ first returns, man, each of us is going to die. The ancient Israelites to whom the book of Genesis was first given, they understood this. And Moses, to whom this book was first revealed by God, he understood this. In fact, one of my most favorite psalms that comes later in the biblical story is written by Moses, Psalm 90. 
And in Psalm 90, he speaks directly to the shortness of our lives, and then he prays a prayer that is fitting for those who understand the brevity of our days. Moses writes in Psalm 90, listen, the years of our lives are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble, and then they are gone. Now here's his prayer in Psalm 90, so teach us, Lord, to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. I once heard of a woman who filled a jar with marbles. Each marble in her jar was meant to represent one week of her life, adding up to about 80 years. And with every passing week, she would remove a marble from her jar. So when six months had passed, there'd be 26 less marbles. When a year had passed, there'd be 52 less. When two years had passed, there'd be 104 less. You get the picture. And at first glance, this practice might seem a bit morbid. But at second glance, isn't this at the very heart of what Moses prays in Psalm 90? Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. For that woman, removing marbles from a jar was a way of wisely visualizing the fleetingness of her life and it reminded her that how she lives her life today is critically important. Don't the most important details of life rapidly climb up the priority list when we put a number on our days? Wouldn't we be more intentional about thinking and speaking and acting in ways that are true and good and right if tomorrow, if we knew that our own genealogy would read, and then she died, and then he died? For each and every one of us, our jar of marbles is diminishing and there is nothing we can do about it. The question is, how will our stories end? How will the song of our lives echo when we are gone? Will you and I be like Cain? Listen, Cain believed that God existed and yet he did not confess his sin and turn from it because the self-gratification of the serpent was too enticing. Will you and I be like Lamech in chapter 423 who believed that God exists, yet he was given to womanizing and murder because his life was ultimately about him? Is that how your story will end? If so, I'm afraid that the best day you have experienced on life, or you know, in your life, is the best day you will ever experience. Because after you close your eyes in death, the next thing you will see is the parade of unrepentant souls being led away to the place they've always desired to be, the hell of separation from God. And you'll see that line because you'll be in that line.
and so will I if my song, if the song of my life is one of the serpent and not the savior. Jesus, save us. It doesn't have to be that way. And I urge every one of us in the room to not let it be that way. As I stated at the beginning of this passage, the genealogy of Genesis 5 shows us not only the perpetuation of life and punishment of death, it also shows us the providence of God as he forges a pathway for his promised offspring to come and to rescue us from Satan, sin, and death. Number three, the providence of God. Look again with me, look down. Look at the wondrous lineage that begins in this passage, starting with Noah, and then to Seth, and then, oh sorry, starting from Adam, and then to Seth, and then to Noah. Look, if we were to keep reading the biblical story, here's what we would read. From Noah comes Shem. From Shem comes Abraham. From Abraham comes Isaac, from Isaac comes Jacob, from Jacob comes Judah, from Judah comes David, from David comes Jesus Christ. The rescuer, the offspring that God promised to Adam and Eve in Genesis three, the offspring whose heel would be bruised on the cross by the serpent, yes, and yet, although his heel would be bruised he would render the death blow to the serpent, crushing his head and overturning his scheme. I've already quoted Ken Matthews, but I'll paraphrase him again. Genesis 5 is a tribute to God's merciful blessing. In spite of Adam's sin and Cain's murder, a righteous seed will be ensured and with it the certainty of a better future. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter five summarizes the, the, the whole of this story from the first creation to the new creation and he says this, sin came into the world through one man and death came into the world because of sin. And death reigned from Adam to Moses and beyond because of one man's sin. But how much more will life and righteousness reign over those who receive the abundance of God's grace in the one man, Jesus Christ, Paul finishes that section in Romans 5 by saying this, by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. But by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. I'm reminded of the words of Joshua to the Israelites when he said this, Choose this day whom you will serve. The serpent? The savior? Because of God's merciful perpetuation of human life, look, you are here right now. You are alive. 
You are breathing. You are sitting right here, hearing this plea with your ears. Choose this day whom you will serve. Because of the punishment for sin, the punishment of bodily death, you who are right here, right now, you might not be here next week and neither might I. You may take your last breath later today and your story, your genealogy will end like this and then he died. And then she died. This isn't some sort of scare tactic. This is an urgent plea. Choose this day whom you will serve. Because of the merciful, provident hand of our good creator God, he is not desiring that any should perish in their sin. From Adam to Seth to Noah to Shem to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Judah to David to Christ to you today, hear what Genesis 5 is practically screaming. Come to me. Turn from your selfish, sinful ways. Put your trust in Christ who, by his life, death, and resurrection, has purchased your freedom from the penalty and power of Satan, sin, and death. Choose this day whom you will serve. What will the song of your life sound like when before the maker himself, he presses play and the two of you listen to the song of your life? I hope that mine sounds, I'm forgetting the name of the hymn off the top of my head. I'm dressed in his righteousness alone. And so faultless I can stand before the throne. Not one of us is collecting a, you know, a bag of merit that we're going to dump on the table in front of the Lord and say, let me in for all of these reasons. No, 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 no. We're going to look at our lives and realize the vacuous, at least I will, self-righteous, self-deceit, but I'll hope, and I hope this, that my life, when I meet Christ face to face, I am yours because you shed blood for me. And by faith and repentance, I I turn from my sin. You gave me the gift of repentance. I am covered in your blood. I am dressed in your righteousness alone. And now, and now, I can stand faultlessly before your throne. Genesis 5 the perpetuation of life, the punishment of death, and the providence of God to bring about our rescue from sin. Let's choose this day whom we will serve. And let's sing to him together in just a moment. Let's pray. Father, it's astounding to me just You wasted no ink in inspiring the scriptures. There is not one word written in here that is not screaming for our life and resurrection in Christ. And we see that right now in Genesis 5, a genealogy for crying out loud. I confess to you that in my personal reading so often I just jump over genealogies. But Lord, there is... There is truth here for us. And I pray by your most Holy Spirit
couple things. One, if there is one in this room who has not turned from sin to believe on the life, death, and resurrection of Christ that you might open their eyes and ears and heart to do so. I also pray, and this is probably the case, that there are some here who have, like Cain and like Lamech, quote-unquote, believed that you exist, but they have not laid their lives down at the feet of your altar. Would you convict and would you lead them to repentance and give them life? And Lord, for all of us, I pray that we would have a sense of gratitude for the life that you have perpetuated here on this earth. We are here, we are flesh and bone, we have souls, oxygen in our lungs, brains to think. I pray that we would be sobered by the punishment of death that is coming for each one of us, Lord, and that you might reveal to us your provident plan. Through the ages and the generations, Lord, you ensured the righteous seed of Christ Jesus, and it's in him, in his death, burial, and resurrection that we may find life. Let us do so as we sing, yet not I, but through Christ in me, in Jesus' name. Amen.